I want to share with you as the morning readings words from two prophets. One, an ancient prophet, Isaiah, and one, a contemporary prophet, Maya Angelou. First, Isaiah. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Holy One will guide you, in, will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins will be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations to come. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. And these verses from The Pulse of Morning, written and originally read at the inauguration of Bill Clinton. I, the rock, I, the river, I, the tree, I'm yours. Your passages have been paid. Lift up your faces. You have a piercing need for this bright morning dawning for you. History, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived. And if faced with courage, need not be lived again. Lift up your eyes upon the day breaking for you. Give birth again to the dream. Women, children, men, take it into the palms of your hands. Mold it into the shape of your most private need. Sculpt it into the image of your most public self. Lift up your hearts. Each new hour holds new chances for new beginnings. Do not be wedded forever to fear, yoked eternally to brutishness. The horizon leans forward, offering you space to place new steps of change. Here, on the pulse of this fine day, you may have the courage to look up and out upon me, the rock, the river, the tree, your country.
So I, I am so delighted and honored to be with you this morning, engaged in this critically important conversation about the role that white people must play in the work of racial justice. It always brings me joy to be back at People's Church, but I realized walking in here I had not been back at People's Church um, since this addition and the recreation of this sanctuary space. But it was 29 years ago that you provided generous hospitality, support, and encouragement to a fledgling congregation that I, along with my colleague Cyril Colonius, helped to found Phoenix Community Church. First, we met somewhere, in an, wherever that is now, in an educational wing, and then here in this sanctuary. So being here is a homecoming, and thank you for this invitation. This past November, on November 10th, two days after the election, I received a letter from Naomi Ortiz, a Mexican-American woman in her mid-30s, a fierce and tender anti-racist disability activist and writer who lives on the borderlands in Tucson. Naomi's letter was addressed to elders in her life. As she put it, people who've been engaged in a desire for a more just world for many years and even decades. And I want to begin with a confession that I've uh, struggled sometimes, uh, that in like about a week, I'll just be two years away from 70. I've struggled with internalized ageism, I'll confess it. But I must say to you, something profound happened to me in the receipt of this letter that was addressed to me, not only to me, as one of Naomi's elders. And when I received that letter, two days after the election, I thought, no, yes, I am the age, I am, and it's good. She began her letter this way. Dear elders, I'm reaching out to you in a time of fear. I've been sitting in and observing my own fear my own intense feelings of vulnerability today. I feel like I could so easily falter into despair. I found myself wondering how each of you is handling your own feelings of vulnerability, fear, or anger. What truths are you grounding yourself in in anticipation of this significant political shift. How are you staying tethered to love? And then Naomi went on to ask us, her community of elders, to share stories of how we had made it through other times when the flame of hope was but a flicker because the forces of death and oppression seem to have the upper hand. So Naomi was 
inviting me to give account of the hope that is within me. And precisely because I too, at that moment, at that time, two days after the election, felt myself perilously close to the precipice of despair, I experienced her request as a gift. Because I was, I was wrestling mightily with anger, grief, and despair, heartbroken and demoralized, that racial scapegoating and fear-mongering could once again be such a powerful and galvanizing political force. One more time in 400 years of history, that race could once again be the dog whistle used to divide poor and working people, that, that race, that white fear and white power was once again issuing in chants like, build the wall and give me my country back. That anger, grief, and despair had surfaced. That anger was not new. It had surfaced along with the grief and despair long before the election. When Trayvon Martin's killer was exonerated, when Sandra Bland was stopped for failing to signal a lane change, dragged from her car, crushed to the ground, when nine members of Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston were gunned down after warmly welcoming a white stranger to their Bible study. I felt despair closing in as I awoke in the middle of the night asking, so how many black men, women, and children have to die a brutalizing death before those of us who are white bring our collective hearts, minds, and souls to the task of excavating, naming, and untying the lethal knot of fear that remains endemic in white imaginations. Like Jacob, who wrestled in the night, I was blessed, strangely blessed, by Naomi's request that I give account for the hope that is in me. A hope that has been and continues to be seeded and watered by multiple communities of which I am a part. And I want to tell you just about two of those communities this morning. The first is my home church community in Lansing, Michigan, St. Stephen's Community Church, United Church of Christ. St. Stephen's is a predominantly black congregation that proudly embraces and celebrates its African roots. And like Phoenix Community Church, St. Stephen's was a new church start in the late 80s. I've been a member of St. Stephen's for five years I draw heart and hope from the deep wells of spirit-filled faith and activism that I find at St. Stephen's. At St. Stephen's, 
I am reminded Sunday after Sunday that the present-day fear-mongering and scapegoating are nothing new, sadly. That every stride toward freedom that has taken place in this country, achieved through black leadership and other leadership of communities of color, has been met by white backlash. Each Sunday, I hear prayers of thanksgiving at St. Stephen's offered for the ancestors who made a way out of no way. And I hear people at St. Stephen's giving voice to the faith that sustains them now and always in the words that echo the Reverend William Barber, president of the North Carolina NAACP, who was just this past week here in Flint. I don't know if some of you were able to, be, to hear him. But he says, Oh, yes, we face some difficult days ahead, but don't let anybody tell you America hasn't seen worse. Our foremothers and our forefathers faced far greater odds with fewer resources. It is our time now. Arm and arm, we're moving forward together, not one step back. At St. Stephen's, each time we sing, ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. Or we sing, we've seen too many victories to let defeat have the last word. My faith is watered. My faith is rekindled. And I can say, oh yes, the struggle is long, but hope is longer. And the other community, another community of which I am a part, is a network of anti-racist white people that has had its beginnings for my life, and you may be part of other such communities. It had its beginnings 23, 24 years ago when an African-American friend and colleague of mine, Lynette Stallworth, challenged me to critically examine why I, as a white woman, so often looked to her, as a black woman, as the expert on racism, depending on her to call me out, to advise me when racist words, behaviors, and policies were at play. She said, so Melanie, what happens when I'm not here? What happens when I'm not here? Or when other people of color are not in the room? What happens, Melanie? How are you, as a white person, holding other white people accountable? How are other white people doing that for you? Melanie, she said, racism is a white problem. And it is long past time for you all to do your own work. Okay, so 23, 24, whatever years ago, first I was stunned, tempted to hide. We had some hurt feel, you know, through defensiveness. Well, I'm not like those other white people. Don't you remember, Lynette? I'm different. But I chose instead. I chose instead to listen. And when I did, I was deeply convicted by Lynette, Lynette's challenge. Because I had to acknowledge that I, and like so many of my well-intentioned white friends, we did not have the vocabulary, the emotional 
vocabulary to talk about racism in an everyday kind of way. We were not conscious enough of the privilege we carried into every single situation that we entered as white people. We were frequently mired in feelings of guilt or shame. And when we encountered racism, where we lived, worked, studied, worshiped, volunteered, we could not be counted on. I could not be counted on to speak up and to confront it. Too often, I, we, fell mute became confused, feared we'd say the wrong thing and make things worse, or simply want to disappear. I could see that I was not trustworthy, especially when things got hot. So Lynette's challenge inspired me to launch something called Doing Our Own Work in 1994, and I launched it with my colleague and mother, Eleanor Morrison. It was an intensive anti-racism program for white people who sought to deepen their commitment to confronting racism and white privilege. So doing our own work, which is still, I came these last two days, <laughs> a new seminar, new doing our own work group met uh, the first two of six days over the next three months met in East Lansing yesterday. People from around the state gathered. And it's, it's, uh, it's designed as a supplement to, never a substitute for, contexts where people of different races work together, talk together, strategize together about how racism must be confronted and dismantled. You could say that doing our own work is kind of a boot camp for white people. Six full days spread, usually spread over three months of intensive reading, reflecting, dialogue, skill practice, structured activities, anti-action uh, uh, reflection pedagogy, all with the goal of diving deep and coming up stronger for the work with people of color and other white people of dismantling racism. And it's been an honor and a joy to do this intensive work for the past 24 years with hundreds of white people from communities all across the United States and Canada because I have witnessed profound change taking place in people's lives. I have seen white people move through places where we so often get stuck. Denial, guilt, shame, fear, I've seen white people recognize that we have spheres of influence where we can use our voices, agency, time, and resources to interrupt racism at the personal, interpersonal, cultural, and institutional levels. I've seen white people move out of our largely white worlds, our white enclaves, into active involvement in organizations and movements led by people of color. In other words, I've witnessed transformation and change that gives me hope. And I've learned over these 24 years that we never arrive at a place of completion, never. The work is never done. Every day brings a new challenge and something new to be learned. That the work of understanding, of understanding what it means 
to be white. The work of confronting racism, systemic racism, requires arduous, persistent, and soul-stretching attention. It also requires that we keep learning every day again how to ground our anti-racist work in collaboration, accountability, and cultural humility by actively seeking out and listening to feedback from people of color, by moving, as I say, out of our white enclaves into spaces where we are not in control, where we are not setting the agenda as white people, by becoming involved in organizations and movements led by people of color, and this is so important, and sustaining that engagement over time. Consistency is absolutely crucial because trust isn't something we're going to be granted simply because we finally showed up. Trust has to be earned again and again and again. And in other words, the work of becoming trustworthy anti-racist white people, my experience, it's a lifelong journey. So, getting on the journey that requires we need one another and we need one another to stay on the journey. To stay on this journey for a lifetime and not to just stay at a surface place but to keep going deeper. We have to cultivate truth-telling relationships of support and accountability with other white people and with people of color who are passionate about racial justice and who are translating that passion into action. And when I say truth-telling relationships, I mean relationships where there is a shared commitment to hearing each other all the way through, no matter how uncomfortable the speaking and the hearing may make us, and a shared commitment to holding each other's pain, grief, anger, and joy. In those relationships, that's one of the places we can practice learning cultural humility, openness, resilience of spirit, learning that when we're challenged on our racism, the world does not have to come to an end, for heaven's sakes. We can go on. We can go on. And we can see it as a, you know, a moment to learn, that we've been granted the opportunity to learn something about ourselves in the world we haven't seen before. That we can find the grace to say, okay, I see now why that remark or that program or that initiative or that project, I can see now why it was racist. And now that I see, I want to do it different. I want to do it differently. These relationships of accountability and support, you know, I don't think there's something to be dabbled in because we need to bring our whole selves. 
We need to be strong and vulnerable enough to bring our whole selves to these relationships. And in so doing, like any full, intimate, truth-telling relationship, we always risk having our feelings hurt and our lives disrupted. But the potential for harm is so much greater if we fail to take that risk. Besides, how else are we going to develop the emotional, physical, and spiritual strength needed to become long-distance runners for racial justice? As, my, as one of my mentors, Ruby Sales, says, we need long-distance runners for racial justice. It's not enough for any of us 68 years old to say, well, you know, back in the 60s, I... <laughs> or during my student days, I... Or even last year, I... So... If you've been a jogger or a runner or have entertained the thought of running or walking a marathon or a half marathon or a quarter marathon, or you know you can't just wake up one morning with that thought, roll out of bed, put your running shoes on, and head to the marathon. It takes months, sometimes years, of practice, of gaining strength. Now, I've never run a marathon or had the ambition to do so, but I do walk vigorously for an hour every morning that I can. And over the years, it's been really good to have a walking partner who holds me to the discipline when I just don't feel like getting out of bed and going for that early morning walk. It's like that. With my truth-telling activist friends who are passionate about racial justice, other white people in my life, members at St. Stephen's, and other people of color in my life. I don't know who I would be without them. I do not know who I'd be without them. They're the people I call when something occurs that I know is wrong, I've got discomfort about it, and I need to check it out. I need to know, am I overreacting? When the vo and, and when they say no... No, Melanie, you are not overreacting. I seek their help in finding the words and the courage to make my voice heard in those spheres of influence that are mine. So we need to nurture spaces like this one here at People's Church where we help each other become long-distance runners and repairers of the devastating breaches that racism and white supremacy continue to create. We need to nurture spaces where we help each other move through the places where we get stuck as white people, or where we get distracted, or we put it on the back burner and say, we'll do it later. We need to nurture spaces where, pe where, where people... And of course, not just white people, but where all of us can lament, rage, grieve, confess, pray, sing, and rejoice in the, where we can grieve the daily de defeats, but also rejoice and celebrate in even the smallest, the tiniest breakthroughs. We need to nurture spaces 
where we find the courage to join our lives with those in our local communities who are putting their lives on the line for the sake of racial justice, really for the sake of all of us, and for the sake of that river, that tree, that rock, our country. Yes, the challenges of this new political era can overwhelm me and perhaps you and bring us close to the precipice of despair. But we can nurture spaces of creative resistance and life-giving activism because the struggle's long. But I do believe that hope is longer. And Maya Angelou has blessed us with the invocation for that work by saying, history, despite its wrenching pain, it cannot be unlived. And if faced with courage, need not be lived again. So lift your eyes upon the breaking day. Give birth again to the dream. So be it. Amen.